Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. We are in the last Sunday of the worship series we've been in for several weeks called Meet the Ancestors. Over these last several weeks, we've been telling the story of God by telling about God's encounters with our ancestors in faith as narrated in the Hebrew Bible. And we have been learning and relearning the nature and character of this God who makes a promise of land and children, that is to say, a future, to Abraham, asking only for Abraham's trust, not law-keeping, not religious observance, but simple trust in return. God who tries again with just one covenant, with just one person, aiming through that singular relationship to eventually reestablish relationship with the whole creation that God still loves. God who wrestles with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, blessing him and renaming him Israel, the one who wrestles with God, and re-promising God's faithfulness to Israel's descendants. God, who then mysteriously disappears from the narrative for a few hundred years between the close of Genesis and the opening of Exodus, but hears Israel's descendants when they cry out from their enslavement and sends Moses as the agent of God's liberative agenda. God, who names God's self, I am who I am, rather confounding our intentions to understand everything God does and hold God accountable to standards we invent for the deity. God, who fulfills the promise of land and prosperity to Abraham's descendants, only to see those descendants clamor for the status of empire, charging kings like David with their national expansion and ascendancy, even while David's disintegrating family life foreshadows Israel's disintegration. God, who speaks through prophets like Isaiah, and Jeremiah, warning that those who live by imperial aspirations will die by empire, either because God opens God's hand to strike them down or because God opens God's hand to release God's beloved wrestlers to the natural consequences of their acquisitive way of being. Either way, It feels really bad when empires like Assyria and Babylon march their militaries onto that promised land and tear Israel's sovereignty to shreds. Tonight we have reached our last entry in this series and the introduction of a whole new empire reported to be in God's employ. Put your hands in the air for Persia, y'all. This is from Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, 
the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia so that he sent a herald throughout all his kingdom and also in a written edict declared, Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and God has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of those among you who are of his people, may their God be with them, are now permitted to go up to Jerusalem in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem and let all survivors in whatever place they reside be assisted by the people of their place with silver and gold, with goods and with animals, besides free will offerings for the house of God in Jerusalem. So the heads of the families of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred, got ready to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors aided them with silver vessels, with gold, with goods, with animals, with valuable gifts, besides all that was freely offered. King Cyrus himself brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. King Cyrus of Persia had them released into the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the inventory. Gold basins, 30. Silver basins, 1,000. Knives, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Other silver bowls, 410. Other vessels, 1,000. The total of the gold and silver vessels was 5,400. All these Sheshbazar brought up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I feel lately that I am repeating myself. I feel lately that I am repeating myself, sometimes by accident, yes, and that's embarrassing and maybe a little bit worrisome, but that is not the kind of repetition I mean. I mean, there are certain stories and themes to which I keep returning again and again, not because of a glitch in a brain of a certain age, but because certain stories and themes keep beckoning to me insisting that they need to be heard again for the 80th time by some of you. I guess for the first time by a few of you. So I indulge the repetition. And here we go again. Many of you have heard me tell of Phyllis Tickle, the beloved and revered grandmother of the emergent church around the turn of the current millennium. Tickle is the one who, in the broadest possible terms, painted a mural of the history of the church over 2,000 years in a book called The Great Emergence. She showed us the tiny, endangered, early church huddled together underground in the early first century CE, and then she swept us quickly to the late 4th century declaration by Emperor Theodosius I 
that Christianity would be the state religion of the Roman Empire and the underground roots of the family tree broke ground and grew into a great monolithic trunk, the one holy Catholic Church. From there, Tickle teleported us to 1054 CE, the Great Schism, the breaking of communion between the, the now Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox churches. And following the Roman branch of the Christian family tree, she showed us Martin Luther's 95 theses nailed to the door of the Wittenberg Church in 1517 calling for the church's reformation, the dissemination of which was made possible by the roughly concurrent invention of Mr. Gutenberg's printing press, and which was picked up by the protestants, and thus were countless iterations of Protestantism born in the West, the mighty Western branch forking into countless Protestant limbs. And Tickle's point in that fast motion sweep of religious institutional history was to get us here, to the teensy tip of the tiniest twig of the Christian family tree, here in Galileo Church's big red barn, here with each other tonight. But first, Tickle said, notice something, notice that all along the way, from roots to twig, the major upheavals in the institutional life of the church have come around about every half millennium. The early church, still underground, pretty close to zero. The empire's endorsement at just about 400. The east-west split at 1,000, nearly on the dot. The Protestant Reformation, another 500 years later. And here we are, Tickle said, not with fear, but with great delight in all the possibilities for the future she could practically taste. Here we are, half a millennium again later ripe for change, just waiting for something new to emerge among the people of God. Oh, what will God do with us next, she asked. The great emergence is what she hoped for. Now here's why I'm telling you this again, or for the first time if you got here lately. If we were to climb back down that great tree and then dig down to its roots to find Jesus and his first followers at just about the zero hour, what we're going to discover there is that this tree is growing in soil that is as old as humanity itself. And that just a little digging in that ancient dirt lands us, get this, 500 years in the other direction, 500 BCE, half a millennium before the infant Jesus is carried in his mother's arms into that Jerusalem temple for their purification. Let me repeat, just a little digging under the Christian roots of this Christian family tree takes us back 500 years to Ezra. Oh yeah. 
and the fall of the Babylonian Empire to Persia in 539 BCE, and the declaration of King Cyrus of Persia that the Israelite exiles hauled into enslavement after the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, just as the prophets had predicted, should now go home. They should go home, King Cyrus said, and start again. Rebuild that temple and that city and get on with their religious life. Now, maybe he did that because he was a really nice guy, as Ezra's account seems to sell. Or maybe he did it because the imperial theory of world domination was changing, turning toward a conventional wisdom that said conquered peoples should be left in place their customs left alone for a more docile and productive underclass, a theory Rome would take up when its turn came. Either way, God shrugged. God could use Persia and Cyrus to get something good, turn it all around, start things over again with God's people, as God had done many times before and would many times since. They called it the Second Temple, and it was dedicated in 516 BCE. And the people of God did indeed start over with the priest Ezra and the governor Nehemiah, establishing again what it means to be the people of God. They read the Torah. They established festivals and sacrifices and cleansing baths and liturgy. They enforced the religious law, particularly reforming economic practice so that the poor were once again protected. And to be fair, one not so pretty aspect of their renewed religious practice was the purging of so-called foreign wives the dissolution of marriages that did not preserve the ethnic identity of Jacob's descendants. Our ancestors in faith were a little bit racist, but didn't we know that already? Racism is part of our religious legacy. It's one we're still dealing with all these centuries later. Anyway, if you fast forward from Ezra and Nehemiah, from the rebuilding of the temple and the restoration of Jerusalem under the reign of the Persian Empire, over 500 years or so of religious life centered in Jerusalem while oceans rise and empires fall, you get back to those underground roots of our tree, you get to Jesus and his friends doing their dead level best to challenge the status quo, doing their dead-level best to reform a system that they love, to make it better, stronger, truer to God's intentions for the people of God. In part because, because that's how this story always goes. Oceans rise, empires fall, and religious life degrades. That is to say, institutionalized communal expressions 
of Abraham's originary raw trust in God. Expressions that always begin with spirit-filled enthusiasm and spirit-led decision-making and spirit-soaked community formation over time tend to dry out and sediment into stagnation. A little less able year by year, century by century, to simply keep up with what God is doing next in this world God still loves. And here it is, good people, the point for which you will want to wake up if this lecture so far has made you sleepy. Wake up. Ecclesia Semper Reformanda Est, <laughs> or for short, Semper Reformanda, or for real now in English, a principle of the church, first named by St. Augustine in the 5th century, popularized by Karl Barth in the 20th. The church must always be reforming. Semper Reformanda, always reforming. That is to say, it is the testimony of our ancestors in faith that while it is not all that hard to get in right relationship with the God of the universe, see Abraham and his raw trust reckoned as righteousness, see the enslaved Israelites in Egypt groaning out the inarticulate prayer born of suffering. It's just not that hard to get on God's good side, but it can be really hard to remain in right relationship with God. Because just when we think we have figured God out and organized ourselves around what we think we know for sure and written our rules and built our temples and established our traditions, all of a sudden, a few of us get a whiff that God has left the building. God has eased on down, eased on down the road. God is waiting impatiently for us to just catch up. And shockingly, although it should not be, it's time to reform, to deconstruct what we've built over the years, to tear it all down and start again. This is the way it is with God, said our ancestors in faith in the Bible and in 2,000 years of church history. Ecclesia semper reformanda est. The church must be always reforming. Now, let us dig ourselves out of the ancient dirt of Ezra through the roots of Jesus' first co-conspirators and scamper up the trunk of the imperial church and scoot on over to the western branch of that schism, climb higher on the limbs of the Protestant Reformation, and shimmy out to right here, right now, to Galileo Church, just one of the nascent communities of belonging in Jesus' name that Phyllis Tickle called the Great Emergence, the next attempt by God's people to shed the heavy weight of institutionalized sameness so that we will be light enough on our feet to chase after God. We leave behind the security of sameness like Abraham and Sarah leaving Ur, like Jacob running from his own mistakes, like the liberated Israelites fleeing Egypt, like King David escaping Absalom's army, like Jeremiah the prophet getting free of that muddy cistern, like Ezra and Nehemiah and the scrappy remnant of God's beloveds returning 
from exile, semper reformanda, always reforming, always ready to move in order to keep up with God, even when it's hard, even when it's costly, even when it's not entirely clear how it's going to end. What I am saying, church, is that part of the reason you are here, here, on this little twig, part of the reason we are all here now is because we have each of us individually already understood that the way we've been doing it, the way the church sedimented its way of being lately, its exclusionary identity, its sameness of structure and practice, its very certainty about God mistaken for the trust of Abraham. These cannot stand here at the dawn of a new millennium. You already know that. The walls of that kind of religious confidence have already crumbled for you. And thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, because thus it has ever been that God moves on and beckons us, come. And if we are stuck, if we are satisfied, we won't do it. But if something has already jostled us loose, already shaken our foundations, I don't know, maybe, maybe you're a girl with a calling, maybe you are queer as fuck, Maybe you're just exhausted of pretending a certainty about God that you outgrew a long time ago. If the windy Holy Spirit has already knocked you down and roughed you up, well, then you are ready to go. And guess what? 2,500 years ago, you would have been among the remnant that went back to Jerusalem with the first wave of returnees under King Cyrus's decree. That's what Ezra reported in verse 5 of chapter 1, that everyone whose spirit God had stirred got ready to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Not everyone, not even every descendant of Abraham, but everyone whose spirit God had stirred. You're here because your spirit done been stirred. Now here is the trick, church. Here is the hard part. It is imperative that out here on this teensy twig that is our address for now, we not start imagining ourselves as the ones who have it all figured out and start pouring cement for the sedimentation of all that we hold dear. Oh no, there is so much more that God has in mind for us. That vision of Micah's, for starters, where nobody needs weapons because everybody is content with what they've got, but everybody needs farming tools because everybody's got a little plot of ground to tend, exactly as God promised for Abraham's descendants and for all the families of the earth, where swords are melted down and reformed into plowshares, semper reformanda, and everyone sits under their own vines and their own fig trees, and nobody makes them afraid. How many half millennia are we away from that? I don't know. 
But I'll be dadgummed if I'm going to settle down right here and figure that this is as good as it gets. Semper reformanda, till God gets every last thing God has imagined for us. So here's to whatever God's going to do next in the world God still loves, church. And here's to the next 500 years. I am endlessly glad and grateful to be spending a handful of those with you. Semper reformanda, always till God's dreams become reality, reforming. Amen. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.